All right, inappropriate Earl. This is getting back to my roots, and I don't mean LeVar Burton by that. It's for you older <laughs> fans. Uh, I'm going back to just having people I like on the podcast. Special thank you to last week's guest, Nirvana, Kiss, manager, publicist for Led Zeppelin, Danny Goldberg. Today, though, I have what I call in the business the real deal. I've known her for 20 plus years. We started comedy together. This is like a comedy store paid regular, interviewing a comedy store paid regular. Put your grubby, <laughs> greasy, pedophile hands together, my fan base, for Christy Miller. What up? Yay! What's happening? God, I miss you. It's been, uh, I haven't seen you uh, physically in about five or six years. And then, uh, yeah, when because when did you leave uh, for New York? I left in 05. I mean, that's like literally, yeah, like tomorrow, 05 will be 17 years because I got here March 9th. And let's start on your journey out here in LA first. Uh, how did you become a paid regular at the comedy store? Because I don't think I know that history. Oh, uh, I started there as a waitress in 1995, got him a hundred. And, uh, it was was like me and Eleanor, Lauren Peltz, Jen Freeman, like the old school comedy store waitresses. And I said, I get a job at the comedy store. I'm supposed to do stand up. So I went in, got the job. And then because waitresses at the time weren't allowed to talk to comics, unless they were buying drinks or something. So we had to hide me being a stand-up, you know, doing open mics and stuff. And then I just became, you know, got up, just did all the, you know, comics work there. So I worked phones. I did waitressing. I did accounting. I was assistant talent coordinator with Scott Day. And then Duncan Trussell took it over. So I became Mitzi's all-around girl. And then... Worked my, you know, then I, I was an employee showcase and that's how I got passed. And did you ever tell Mitzi during this time frame, hey, I want to do stand up? Uh, or how did you approach her? Because she was, I don't think people really get like how much of a godfather type figure she was. Like it was, she was very scary from what I understand. Yeah. Well, she was the godmother. That's what she called herself. You know, I'm not your mom, I'm the godmother. I'm like you had to kiss the ring. But I wasn't allowed to tell her. And she found out by accident. And like they were at, you know, a meeting going over the, the showcases that I was her, her at vice president at the time, Mike Becker, Scott Day, Dave Schuler, the Dave man, day manager back then. And they were going over the and Scott Day and they were going over the employee lists and the and the showcase list. And they forgot to take my name off the employee list so she wouldn't get mad because they had a separate list for the cover booth that they would show Mitzi. And then she saw that I was on the list and she goes, Christy's a performer. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's great. And she starts laughing and everybody's like, whoo, we thought you were going to get fired, but no. And then it was okay after that. Then I could go in front of her because waitresses weren't allowed to hang out at the store on their off nights. Right. What brought that change? I mean, because then later uh i think probably right around when i got past the, the waitresses and comics were almost one and the same at that point right i think that i don't i don't mean to say it like that but i think that is um kind of maybe the uh the catalyst that helped her get over that the whole waitresses were not allowed to talk to comics because they were fucking the comics and you know, Sammy ran off with a waitress back in the day in the 70s. And she had this thing about waitresses. So I think after that, you know, it calmed down and we didn't have to like hide things from her anymore. And then, you know, and then Eleanor being there so long after I left, you know, Eleanor was still there. And then Eleanor started stand up and she was so close to Mitzi. And I think, you know, between me and Eleanor, it kind of saw, you know, opened up those gates to let Mitzi realize like, you know, we're all employees. We're all comics that, you know, we're all there because we love this place. Not because we're, you know, whores, but we are. So. Well, some of them were, uh, <laughs> we won't name them, but. Yeah. Some uh, were. Yeah. I was a shitty whore. 
this is uh, the, the dark era of the store. You know, I think people think of the comedy store and think, you know, Rogan coming back and it's packed and, you know, roast battles popular. Right. And uh, Describe the right. store back then, which was like, I often would see the original room maybe on a Saturday night, 20 people in it. I mean, it was. Oh, yeah. Different time. I got there and. Oh, uh, way different. I was there from 95 till 2005. And from 95 until I'm going to say, oh, two, maybe, oh, you know, oh, two, oh, three. It was dead. Like we were begging people like we would go to the Hyatt next door and drop tickets off to the concierge, like stacks of them <laughs> and try to like. You know, hey, give these out to your hotel guests. You know, we need people in the seats because re you remember there'd be times, you know, a Friday night show in the OR, they would uh, be nobody there. And we wouldn't start the show till about 930 or whatever. And, you know, we'd walk in and, and walk up to the mic and touch it and then walk off the stage huh. so we could still get paid. Because if we went home, we wouldn't have got paid our big fifteen dollars. <laughs> Around this time frame, who are the comics going up? Like, I remember seeing Sebastian, a young Sebastian and Caparulo doing two spots. Yep. Like, uh, Caparulo, a very young Sebastian. Uh, uh, God, uh, you know, like at, at like that, that generation, it was just like. David Shabbat's. Kind of, yes. Uh, Renazizi. God, I'm trying to remember. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Luca, you know, Pascatelli. A young uh, Tiana. Yeah. Like, you know, Tripoli, you know. Uh, God, there were so many back then that were just, you know, that were just regulars. So those were our spots. And then if it wasn't either the show's not starting on time because there was no people and the main room was closed every night except Saturday. And they would be lucky there'd be 10 or 15 people there. And you'd have like Nick DiPaolo, Retha Jones, Argus Hamilton and the main room, you know, Joe Rogan, we get a main room spot on Fridays. We had Joey Diaz, you know, back then. But it was like if you were lucky to get a spot and then you'd always have like Eddie Griffin, Dice, uh, you know, one of those guys, Damon, come in and bump the lineup for about six hours. And we just, you know, gave up at that point. <laughs> Well, I mean, uh, among those guys you just named, wasn't Eddie Griffin known as like the marathon light runner? Like, I never saw Dice really run the light. I mean, he did a fair amount of time, but I don't think people minded with him. But Eddie Griffin could do two or three hours. Oh, uh, yeah, Dice would do about an hour, which was fine. He's Dice. He's an right. icon. Eddie Griffin would go up for four hours. <laughs> like, if he got there at 10... And it got on stage around 1030. It'd be 233 a.m. before he got off stage. So the one was like, and then Carlos Mencia would do it, you know, and they would all fight because there was no, we really didn't have any like parental guidance back then. You know, it was kind of a free for you remember, it was like a big free for all. Like we just kind of ran the store and it just kind of just did what we wanted. So, like, you know, the bigger names, like like Mencia was the big name there at the time. Like he was the, 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 the golden child and then you had Griffin and Rogan and dice and, but you know, Carlos and Eddie were the ones that would really bump the lineups for hours and just hog the stage, you know, dice to do an hour. That's normal. That's what you would expect from an icon. If he's going to pop in, you expect an hour, but he would never, he would literally get off. I got to, you know, leave some for the rest of the guys. You know, he was dice is a good guy. I love Dice. Every time I see him, I talk about this. I think it was the first movie he was in called Making the Grade. And uh, I remember that movie. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it didn't do very well, but it wasn't his fault. Like it was just Judd Nelson yeah, was, was like, uh, I don't know what they were trying to make him the new comedy teen heartthrob guy, but uh, it was a pretty funny movie, but it just. There was supposed to be a sequel and that never happened. And uh, but then Dice got a crime story, which is I always talk about crime story with him. So uh, yeah, that's that was awesome. My, that was my first exposure to him. Like when I saw him at the Wiltern, right as he was about to blow up, I was like, "Oh, that's the guy from wow. Crime Story." Like so, um, that's hilarious. 
I know. Now I guarantee you, no one in the wheelchair that night was. Oh, that's the guy from that Michael Mann show. Uh, but <laughs> he was. That had such a great cast in it. Like the guy who played Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs was in yep. it. Yep. Um, yep. And a lot of character actors that Michael Mann always liked to use. So, uh, I saw. It was say, a great show. I mean, I think it just cost too much money. I think back then. I read somewhere right. that it was like a million dollars an episode, which in uh, I think it was '86 it started. That was just crazy money. Uh, yeah, that's insane but, money for a TV show. But it would have been interesting if they would have done a third season. That's right when Dice blew up. Uh, how they would have, because he was kind of a side character on the show, so it, it would have been interesting, right? If they would have just turned it into the Max Goldman show, but. Uh, we'll never know. <laughs> and he's killing it in the Tom and Pammy show. Like, dude, I know he he had so much fun doing that. He was so excited to do that. You know, fun. even though Eleanor's his main opener, I get little. He throws me a bone every now and then. I get a you know a show here and there in between. So, and it's still like, nice to see him. I, you know, it's a weird thing when you're opening up for an icon. Like I used to open up for Rob Schneider, and it was a very uh, strange feeling to be in a 2000 seater or whatever, a pretty big theater or a packed comedy club. And you realize everyone is there to see Rob or Dice. Uh, but I found they gave the opener respect. They gave you five minutes to get them. Like, okay, Dice has this girl opening up. She's mm -hmm. got to be pretty cool. Uh, did you have that same feeling like opening up for this icon? Like, wow, how do I win them on my side? Well, I'm lucky enough that I had many years, many, like 12 years with Paul Mooney. So when you open for Paul Mooney, that is like, you, if you don't get them in 30 seconds, they will kill you. So, so every, people have asked me, what's it like going from a Paul Mooney audience, which are diehard Mooney fans, they don't give a fuck who's on front of him. They don't care. They want Mooney. And then go to diehard Dice fans. I'm like, it's the same extremism. It does, it's, it's, race and stuff has nothing to do with it. It's that fanaticism that they have. So you just have to go out there and own them before they own you and take command. And I have a very present uh, persona on stage. You know, I'm, I walk in and I like Dice back at the comedy store used to call me military. <laughs> he used to do this bit about, uh, I don't like female comics that are annoying, except for military. She's the only one I like. And that, you know, that's pre Eleanor. So, uh, <laughs> it was, it was a nice, you know, shout out. Like he goes, he's uh, cause he told me, cause you walk in, he's all, you walk on stage and it's like 10 huh? and you make them pay attention. So, and then just using that skill with Mooney for 12 years and then now using it with dice, his crowds are amazing. Like they show you mad love. So. And what were Mooney's crowds them. like? They were amazing and just passionate. And it's the same thing, but they were like, when they loved you, Ooh, they loved you. I've gotten standing ovations in Mooney's room at Caroline's those times. And I've gotten booed. So I had to figure it out. Like in the beginning I got booed because I wasn't, you know, connecting. And I just finally just stopped giving a fuck. I'm like, well, this isn't working because I'm too worried about what's happening up here. I need to just have, you know, get over my, this is like a hundred years ago, like 20 years ago. And I'm like, I need to just get over myself and just be me. And when I did that, I won him over every time. And Mooney told me, he goes, Sandra Bernhardt would tank in my room constantly. He goes, you crush my rooms. He goes, she never did as well as you. Do you think oh, he had you uh, open for him just because it's such a, uh, I mean, you and Mooney visually are very different looking. He's this older black dude I, and you're like a rock and roll Joan Jett if she worked out. Yeah. Well, I don't really see the physical differences because when I see me, I see, I'm just kidding. <laughs> We're twins. Um, he, Mooney loved... <laughs> Uh, you couldn't tell us apart, but Mooney loved crazy. Mooney loved originality. 
And Mooney loved real. Like when you went up there and just let it out, he loved you. And that's what he loved about me. He goes, you're so real up there and you're just so don't give a fuck. And this is what I love about you. And you're so funny. Because that's what he was like. You talk about a guy who didn't give a fuck. Like, you know, his, I think his, first, I don't know if it was his first comedy album, but uh, it's called Race. And uh, yep. it's the one with Don Barrett. My favorite. Yeah. I mean, yep. <laughs> I remember it's kind of like the dice story. Like I knew Mooney as the guy who played Sam Cooke in the Buddy Holly story. And right. Oh, that's, that's the guy who played Sam Cooke. Let me get his album. Not, <laughs> not really knowing much about his act. So I remember <sighs> I, I bought, it's so funny how you can remember things this clearly. I, I bought it at the warehouse CD store in Westwood. <laughs> I put it in my CD Amazing. player and I'm blasting it. And this cop car pulls alongside next to me. And it was the part where uh, I guess a white lady uh, was kind of heckling him and she left the room and, and Mooney said something like, that. oh, yes, my uh, <laughs> my my blank friends are going to steal your car. <laughs> and, <it> was, <laughs> and the cops. Just I remember that. Yeah, I mean, the cops look at me like, dude, roll your window up if you're going to listen to that. Uh, so, um, he was, he was. Roll like, your window up with that colored nonsense. Just. <laughs> I wish he was more famous. Like, famous is the wrong word, oh. or well known. Because uh, he was. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, people just kind of know him. Oh, that's Breyer's uh, sidekick. Uh, but he was such an amazing, one of the greats. Yeah, the greats like, you know, Pryor was a great story. You know, thanks to Paul Mooney, I got to know Richard in his later years. So Richard is a storyteller. Like no one can tell a story like Richard Pryor. Like he was a king storyteller. Mooney was a joke writer and political and didn't give a fuck and saw things through different. Like you're like, fuck, why didn't I see that? It was so right there. And then Mooney would point it out in such a Mooney way. And they were so great together. And, you know, Mooney helped Richard be who he was and vice versa. But Mooney always took a back seat to everybody. Like Mooney wanted you to shine. Like he didn't really care because he knew who he was. And I wish everybody knew him. And I wish a lot of these comics knew their history. And, you know, with these icons that, you know, especially with like with Paul Mooney, like people at the comedy store know Paul Mooney. But if you a lot of others really don't unless like New York knows Paul. So the thing I love about this city is they love Paul Mooney and but anywhere else, they really don't know him. And he's just he's the godfather. You know, we used to call him the remember, we used to call him the professor. The professor's here. Let's go sit in the back and go learn something. Oh, I used to love watching him like this because I love that sense of humor he had. You wouldn't think a white mm -hmm. dude like me would appreciate his <laughs> acerbic wit but uh but the thing is the reason is is because you know who the fuck you are you know what i mean yeah. you're comfortable in your own skin you're not insecure it's ones that get offended or triggered or whatever the fuck word is today you know this is triggering i feel unsafe go fuck yourself this is reality toughen up you know who you are so it doesn't bother you like when i would open for him i'd be in the back Rolling on the ground laughing, even though I know all the material by heart, but Mooney made it brand new every night. And then there'd be other white people looking at me like, what is she laughing at? And I looked at one couple one night. I said, he ain't talking about me. You know, no. I don't give a fuck. And, you know, if they get offended, it means they actually are what he's talking about. But it's, you know, real people understand, get humor. Well, he was even funny in the Buddy Holly story, like when he walked in yeah. to the hotel, which was a, I think it was a all black hotel, and they looked at the white bass player. And he's like, "That's just my uh, caretaker," and like, <laughs> it was such a racially charged scene. But even his, mm -hmm. even in a, I think it was a PG movie, you could tell oh, this guy's pretty dark. Like, oh yeah. Um, did he give you, what advice did he give you? Like, I'm curious as to what a legend would tell a younger comic like you, like, Hey, you should do this. Here's how you should perform dress. Did he tell you anything like that? Actually? Yes. The best piece of advice I got from Mooney. And it's probably the best piece of advice I ever got. Mooney told me this in my very young age, homie, 
it doesn't matter if there's one person or a thousand people in the audience. Do your show. And I never forgot that because, you know, late nights at the comedy store back then, there'd be one or two people. And he goes, honey, do your shit. So I would treat those two people. You know, if I'd have the Kinnison spot, I would treat those two people as if they were 2000 people and I'd have so much fun. But I learned that from him because that really stuck with me as a young comic, only like a couple of years in. So I always remembered that. And even here in New York, these comics are very, I hate to say it, they're spoiled because there's so much stage time here. And we're so conditioned in Los Angeles that we're very limited to our venues where we could do stand up, especially when we started. We had three clubs, possibly four if you went to Pasadena, you know, but we had the Laugh Factory, the Improv and the Comedy Store, which were three different entities with three different types of comics. And we were the we were the land of the misfit toys and the degenerates. So we stayed. It was Animal House. So we stayed at the store so we could be who we were. So we come out to New York. There's rooms underneath rooms, underneath rooms like there's so much stage time. And it's amazing to watch comics go on stage and then get mad at the audience and get upset because there's empty chairs. And I've gone on stage more times than any and turned into Paul Mooney and cussed the comics out when I got on stage and then did my set. Like, it's just like you can't punish four people that are there watching you because you're not a big enough name to draw more than that because they're not there to see you. They're there to see a show. Maybe you should be better. Don't worry about it. Be funnier. Maybe you should have been better. You could have got more people in to, with your name on the marquee, but I don't see your name on a marquee because you ain't shit. So fucking appreciate what you have. Put the show on. Don't punish those four fucking people because you're a piece of shit. Do your show. Make them love you. No, I learned that. Uh, I, I never really got to talk to Mooney, but I, you could tell that he told that to Barris as well because I sure. seen... Uh, Don Barris go up uh, you know, after a three-hour gangbang of comedy, and you think, oh, he's <laughs> going to bomb. N- not because it's him, but just no one's going to They're tired. Him. Yeah. They're- I mean, it's three hours, and then Don will do another hour, and he kills. Yeah, yeah because Don <laughs> learned from off. Mooney. Yep. Because, I mean, Mo- you know, Don loved, I mean, Mooney loved Barris, loved him. And- oh, you could tell. Oh, yeah. Because he was crazy. And Don wasn't afraid to be who he is. He is unapologetically Don Barris. And that's what Paul would react to when you are unapologetic of who you are. Just like this is it. And you just let it all out. Mooney loved it. He ate it up. Because it was real. How did his death affect you? Because I know a lot of people who like the few people who knew Mooney like you and other Don, I could tell Don was very sad and uh, like, did it? Uh... It was hard. It was like losing a father. It really was. It's like a, it, it ripped my soul out because I always knew, you know, you prepare for it. And I haven't talked to him in a few years because the dementia got really bad and the people around him, the vultures kind of pushed everybody out so they can horn in on whatever was left of Paul Mooney and milk him for every dollar they could. Um, but so I got pushed out and I stopped fighting because I got tired of fighting all for years because I was there to I was there to protect him because he, you know, he was like a father to me. He treated me like his kid. He told me, like, you're like my other daughter. And, you know, when it finally I had to let go and just stop fighting and then I always prepared for it. But I wasn't you never prepared. Same with my mom. I wasn't prepared, even though you were. But when he died, it destroyed me. I woke up and there was hundreds of texts and messages on my phone and Facebook and Instagram. Like, I'm so sorry. You know, it's like, uh, it it was, it it was devastating. It was like losing my dad and I still miss him. And I still, you know, I still, it hurts still, but it's, you know, it, 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 it's just, it is what it is, but it's hard yeah. for me to talk about emotional shit because I'm such a cold-hearted bitch. So just you are. That's why I like you. Though. <laughs> you always kept it real, like yeah. Even in the shitty rooms we were doing, mm-hmm. like coconut mm-hmm. teaser on a Monday night with a uh, guy. Oh, I miss those. <laughs> Otis, the sound guy on heroin. Uh, <gasps> Otis! Oh my god, I forgot about him. <laughs> 
Oh. Once during the show, I'm like, dude. Sure. Why not? Uh, yeah, because back then uh, there weren't a lot of. I mean, there was probably more open mics and shitty bar shows and there were clubs to do. Like I, I wasn't getting into a comedy club because I had no credits. So you had to do wacky rooms. Well, that's when those wacky rooms popped up because comedy crashed and there was no more spots and shows. So we wanted to get on stage and there was nowhere to get. And there's only three clubs and half of them weren't even open half the time. And they weren't have shows and people, you know, there's thousands of comics fighting over a few spots kind of like right now. And so we created bar shows and, and, and shows in the belly room and, you know, weird, co- you know, rock a coconut teaser and like the strip clubs we would do it at, you remember? And then Larry Flint's, you know, coffee shop, bookstore, the hustler store or whatever. Like we create coffee, you know, coffee shop comedy was a thing, you know, like we just found creative ways to figure out how to get on stage and get better and do shows. That's, that's just what we did. I mean, that's one of my favorite shows I ever did was the Hustler Store, which is now just a vacant building. But the guy, I don't know if you knew this guy, just another one of the L.A. freaks named Johnny Montana. I'm Johnny Montana. I'm Johnny Montana. <laughs> of course. Coke, I- coked out motorcycle guy. Oh. And he told me as I got on stage, this is at the Hustler Store. He's like. Hey, dude, it's a clean show. And like, what? <laughs> it's like a gangbang video for sale placard above this microphone. <laughs> but I miss those days somewhat because uh, nowadays, at least in L.A., it, it's everyone's so focused on getting on TV. And, uh, you know, I got to I got to go to this pool party. I got to go meet John Mayer over here. And like back then it was. Well, like, yeah, well, back but if you did comedy back in that time frame, you wanted to do comedy. You weren't trying to meet people. Well, because we didn't have social media. You right. know, the Internet really wasn't a thing. And, you know, there was no Facebook. There was no TikTok. There was no Instagram. There's no cell phones that had cameras on them. There was no, no bullshit. It was like either you got you went on stage or you didn't. That was it. You know, either you were funny or you weren't. So. We hustled because we wanted to be there. Remember, we would stand out in front of the Whiskey A Go Go at two in the morning, handing out flyers to our shows. Yeah. You know, and I, I loved that coffee shop. I have a funny Mooney story about the Hustler store. One night I had I was doing a spot there and Tripoli went on before me. And Mooney's like, oh, look at this fake white boy. He's Armenian. He could spot him a mile away. He's acting white. So people are like, you brought Paul Mooney to this mic? And I'm like, well. Yeah, he came with me because he used to come with me everywhere because he was he was helping. You know, he loved me. So I went up and did my thing, did what I do. And then Mooney wanted to go up. So Mooney went up for a few minutes and just tortured everybody. Ah, it was so like heaven. And it's like Mooney at the Hustler store telling doing stand up and roasting all these young comics. Ah, It was like the highlight. And it was so funny. and. I loved those rooms because it was so real. It was so raw. Like we didn't give a fuck. We're not worried about how many followers am I getting off of this show? Like who do I, you know, it's like we were just comics back then. Yeah. Like I'm doing a show tonight at, uh, well, you said, I think when you were here, it was called red rock. Oh yeah. Small bar on sunset. But like, you could tell some of the people on the lineup were just doing it to get the IG followers up. Cause, uh, like, Ian Edwards is on the show, so they want to meet him and follow him. Of course. Like, I don't even, I I haven't heard of 80% of the people on the lineup, which that ain't a good sign. But uh, that's, but that's the norm, especially here in New York. Unless you're at the cellar, you'd haven't heard half of the lineup because a lot of it's independently produced that it's like getting their bringer people to bring comics, I mean, to bring audience, and then they'll book like one or two pros to make the show to like save the show and give it some kind of substance. And it's like, you get, I do lineups. I'm like, who are these people? Like, I have no idea who they are. Like I'm doing a, a room tomorrow night in Brooklyn Heights. It's like, Brooklyn's really popping up with comedy. Like Brooklyn's really exploded in the last couple of years, especially since lockdown. Like there's some like outdoor spots and rooftop shows and because they have the space for it. And then like clubs were born, like the tiny cover. It's like the little 
you know, woke club. I've never played. I probably never get invited there because <laughs> I'm just, I don't care what people think. I think everything is funny. So, uh, but there's like uh, Brooklyn Comedy Club is great. There's the House of Comedy out there, the Brooklyn House of Comedy, um, which is really fun. Then uh, there's another place at O'Keefe's that upstairs they have the punching bag, which is a comedy uh, night. So they're you know starting to do like headliners. It's it's fun. So I'm doing that tomorrow, and then but that's fun. But it's you know little shits popping up that you would never expect to pop up, but they're actually really fun rooms. But, I mean, I do like New I, York. Uh, I've only done comedy there once, but I, I loved how you could walk to like five shows, get paid for most yeah. of them. That's insane. Like, as an L.A. comic, I guess I'm considered. That's insane to me that you could do no, five paid spots in the night. Yeah, because it's the access to everything. Like I was, I was talking to a comic. I had a spot Sunday night. There's a, a newer club called the Grizzly Pear Comedy Club. It started off as a bar in the village. And then they had this back space that held about 100 people and a little stage. And a couple of comics took it over like young comics and took it over and made it and made a deal with the owner. And they changed the name of the venue to the Grizzly pair comedy clubs. So now it's a comedy club. So the front bar is still there. And then the back space is where the shows happen. And it's seven nights a week, three to four shows a night, Friday and Saturday nights, the shows sell out all four shows. It's all in-house booked. I think the six o'clock and the midnight are independently booked, but the eight and the 10 are in-house. Those right. are the shows that I do. So it's packed and it's right by the cellar. They get a lot of the cellar drip offs and it's in between that and the Greenwich Village Comedy Club. And then there's another club called the Comedy Cove that used to be the Village Lantern around the corner on Bleecker. So within a block and a half, you have three comedy clubs. So it's, you know, it's great because it's a walking city. L.A., wherever you drive, that's it. Because it's such a pain in the ass to drive around anywhere, whatever club you're playing, that's that's where you're going and that's where you're staying. That's it. You can't do two or three clubs a night. It doesn't work that way. And now in LA, if you're not on TV, you're not getting a spot at a club. Like, so it's. Oh yeah. I believe know. it. Cause they're trying to recoup their money. They lost. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's very tough to get it. And there's fewer rooms now. Like when we were doing, I'm, we had an option of four or five rooms every night. Hey, let's go yep. here. Let's go there. Now yep. it's like, uh, Let's go to the Liquid Zoo on Sunday. Like, <laughs> no, I'm serious. Like, there's no, no like, uh, there's not four or five rooms. There's like the three clubs. There's Supernova, which is an outdoor show, uh, right? And and that's pretty much a credits based, right? You know, they're booking Instagram models who've never done comedy before. Uh, yeah, but you know, I guess that's what Caroline's is doing. Caroline's is booking TikTokers and having us open for the TikTokers. And like, do the comics, as I know comics, do the comics after their sets stay in the back to watch the TikTok comic bomb? I, I mean, oh, yeah. I'm oh, yeah. You have bomb. to. You have. You, oh, well, it's a, it, out here. They bomb or they don't draw like uh, there's an old school comic. I don't know if you know him. His name is Jim Madrinos. He's been around about 43. Was he started with? He came up under Kinnison. He started stand up when he was 15. Like Sam used to crash on his couch when him and his mom lived on the Upper East Side. And they played Dangerfield. Sam took him under his wing. He was kind of like his drug go boy, you know, like, like his tell him, you know, go fetch my drugs for me kind of thing. And then Sam would take him on the road with him because he liked the kid. And a great storyteller. Jim Adrinos is one of those underrated, he wrote uh, MTV spring break every year for a hundred years. Okay. He wrote all that shit that he was a big writer on TV shows. So he wasn't like a household name comedy wise, like stand up, but he was a big writer on all the shows back in the eighties. So, and for other comics, like high headliners would hire him to write for him. Right. So Madrinos gets a call from Louis Ferranda from Caroline's. And there was this girl on TikTok who had like, 2 million uh, followers that he had booked to headline one night, do a one night. And Madrinos was to open, like feature. And Madrinos is like, really, Lewis? Really? Really? All right. He's like, no, she's got 2 million followers. It's going to be great. 
it's going to sell out. And he goes, okay. He gets there. He goes, Christy, there were six people in the oh. audience. He goes, and he went up, did his thing, crushed. The girl couldn't follow him because she didn't have any content because, you know, she's a TikToker, you know. And he tells Lewis the next day, he goes, you could have made me headline, paid less money than you paid her. I could have got 12 people in that audience. Like, what are you doing? And it's like these TikTokers, it doesn't work in the city because everybody that follows people on TikTok that would go see a fucking TikToker like they're a celebrity lives out in bumfuck nowhere. So a friend of mine who saw me on a couple shows on In Hot Water with Aaron Berg and Gino Bisconti, do you know them? <laughs> Gino, Mr. COVID isn't real. Uh... Yes, yes, yeah. Crazy Gino. Um, but before COVID, before he went conspiracy huh. nuts, um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, cause it almost killed me, uh, January, 2021. Uh, I had COVID really bad. I'm like, okay, Gino, it's fake. Okay. Um, I did their show a couple of times before, like in 2019. And there's a, this guy that's like one of their super fans follows me. And, and I got talking to him. We become friends, Jeff. He's a cop in Minneapolis and he's hysterical. He's a good dude. And he said, he went to uh, a comedy show in Minnesota that, you know, there was like some TikToker or YouTube or like one of those, you know, influencers that does stupid videos. But a comic he really liked was featuring for the TikToker. So he went to the show and he said it was sold out and it was packed out. And he said all that YouTuber did was play their YouTube videos on a screen for the audience. That was his show the stuff that he had already gone viral with. He was just playing over. Hey, remember this video? Hey, remember this video? Ah! I'm like, they paid how much to go to a comedy club to watch videos they've seen a hundred times on YouTube at home for free. All right. Well, I mean, I think that's the problem with uh, like some of these, not all, you know, uh, but a lot of the social media stars is, Anyone can be at home in their underwear and click a video, but you know, to get them to go out, pay 20 bucks to park, 20 bucks to get in, you got a date, that's 40 bucks. Like it's you gotta be a draw, like a comedy draw. Uh but you know, for some, you know, we know Josh Nasser. Uh that's yes. a dude who uh couldn't get clubs to email him back for a feature spot. Uh, yep. But but the difference with Josh is he's an actual comic, so he's got the chops. He's I mean, been doing comedy and warm up for how many? Twenty years? Twenty five so, years? Yeah, I mean it's a little yeah. different with him because he's got the actual uh, chops of yeah. stage time. Right, right. So uh, you know, it, not all social media people are horrible comics, but you know most are because I don't think they put the work into the comedy like they do the videos. Right. Well, like comics that go viral like that, like like Ryan Long, um, uh, uh, Rich Aronovich, uh, you know, that have taken stupid videos that they've done and sketches and gone viral with them. But they were comics already and already had hours of material and the grind underneath them. So for them to go viral and then hit the road, they're going to crush like that's that's amazing. That's what should happen. But a lot of these people do stupid videos. They go viral, but they have no content. They've never done stand up. They've never they don't know what it's like to go on the road. They've never written a fucking joke. They don't grind. They don't know what it's like. So they go to these clubs and they think this is so easy. And and they find out the hard way. It's not. And it's like, like I don't know how you feel about, you know, the whole thing with T.I. doing stand up and the whole Godfrey thing. I don't know if you heard about that. No, please do spill the tea, girl. Okay, well, honey, uh, T.I., you know, rap legend T.I., the mogul of Atlanta, um, is deciding he's going to do stand-up now. So Godfrey is headlining in Atlanta at the Atlanta Comedy Theater or whatever, and T.I. is friends with the people that own the complex that the comedy club is in. So they invite him down to the comedy club to get him on stage. Well, Godfrey's headlining. This is Godfrey's show. So Godfrey's going to do an hour. So T.I. decides he's going to go on after Godfrey okay. and do his set for an hour at Godfrey's show. 
So Godfrey had a felt some type of way about it, which I totally understand. And now T.I. is saying that Godfrey's hating on him because, you know, you're hating on me because I want to do stand up and you're just jealous. Well, no, it was kind of disrespectful how you did it. You didn't go to Godfrey. Hey, can I get a guest spot? I'm starting stand up. I want to try it out. Godfrey would have told the dude, come on out, come do a spot. But the fact that he did it behind him and it was just, it was all, it's a whole shit show. You got to look it up online. It's hysterical. But Godfrey's very, uh, I want to say he's moony like from the standpoint of he doesn't take any bullshit. No. And he's smart when it comes to this shit. He is smart and he's great at what he does and he's very sweet. And the fact that, you know, it'd be like if Godfrey went to a TI show, right. (laughs) He's put on a concert and Godfrey, talks to the people that own the complex where the, the forum is or whatever and goes, yeah, I'm going to go rap after TI. Let me go on after TI and do an hour. I'm going to do my fucking hour. Like, like who does that? But whatever, not my circus, not my clowns. But, I mean, that's how I feel with actors, you know, Jeremy Piven and, and yeah. know, John Mayer. Like it, I'll give John Mayer this. He seems relatively, aware of okay this isn't my world i'll be at least be respectful if you're respectful nobody cares respect the craft it'd be like if i went to a john mayer show and said oh move over i'm gonna play piano and i don't do it that well but i think i do and fuck you no i can't i can't i have no respect he went on after me once and i stayed to watch i just i gotta see how john mayer is a comedy because he strikes me as the type of guy that's good at everything uh, right. He, you know, he wasn't very good. And he asked me after, sure. I don't know why he wanted my approval, but he's like, uh, hey, Earl, what'd you think of my act? And I was like, hey, uh, how would you feel if I interrupted your concert and played guitar like shit? And he just looked at, he got it. He laughed. <laughs> well, because you were honest with him. You weren't kissing his ass going, oh, wow, you're so funny, John. You should totally do stand up because I'm going to kiss your ass because you're a celebrity. No, yeah. you're like, dude, you suck. Sorry. More or less. I mean, now, if it was CeCe DeVille from Poison, I'd be like, dude, you crushed it, bro. <laughs> <laughs> but CeCe probably has really great stories, though. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, he did. I met him once at Mel's Diner, and uh, I was totally starstruck. Because you know it's him, because he's just... Yeah, he's so distinct. I met him at the comedy store once. Oh, he's a big comedy store guy. Yeah. No. I remember the first time I met him, he's like, yo, and he like, like, he was so nice and so funny. And I'm like, dude, it's CeCe DeVille. This is hysterical. Yeah, I mean, he's LA iconic. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, totally. Yeah, but that's like my beef with outsiders coming into our <laughs> business. It's just be respectful and like, you won't take so much shit. Yeah, we'll actually support you and welcome you in if you just do it respectfully. Don't just shit on people and bump them and do stupid shit and like try to be like, oh, I'm better. I'm so-and-so, so I could do whatever the fuck I want. Go fuck yourself. I don't have time for it. Like Can I open for like, you? Uh, <laughs> Steve-O, you know. I was hosting right. Potluck at, uh, one night and Steve-O, he asked if he could go on and uh, I said, I'll put you on right now because he, he was so nice about it. And he just told a story or two. And then he's like, hey, did I run the light? And like he was Aww. very aware of uh, the uh, the protocol of how right. it works. And, and it, it was pretty funny. He just told stories. He didn't do any jokes. So, Right. Well, you, that's, uh, a, that's a stick. I mean, when you taser your balls, that's pretty funny. Like, um, it's my closer. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm getting to the point now where I go, yeah, that'd be a good closer. Uh, but Roddy Piper was the same. Like, uh, he would come mm-hmm. up to the comedy store, and of course, every male, usually male, uh, would be. It was like watching Superman pull in the driveway. Like, oh my god, right. he was in the first WrestleMania, and uh, yeah. he wanted to do comedy, and he would go on stage, and uh, you know he. He didn't have the best jokes. Steve Simone was helping him with that. And uh, after about 10 minutes, he'd kind of lose steam. And uh, yep. we would just yell out wacky questions, usually led by me, because no one had the the balls to start the, hey, uh, how big was Kamala's dick, Roddy? <laughs> uh, and then he would go into a Kamala story. And then right. 
someone would, and then that was funny. And then, hey, uh, was uh, Jake the snake really in love with the, the snake? And like just dumb, the dumbest questions you could think of. <laughs> and we would guide him to a good story. So that's amazing. Uh, what's uh, comedy like in New York? post pandemic like is it getting because the mask girls out here are all over the place the who's the mask rules like you know oh, okay. are people uh like you could slowly tell at the comedy store people are coming back but uh i know new york has a different set of guidelines yes because we are like i think right now at 90 percent 93% at least first vaxxed, if not fully vaxxed, because we were the epicenter. So we got hit hard first and everybody else, it kind of just filtered in as it, as it spread. So when it hit us, we had no idea. So it kind of scared us, you know? And so we were very for the masking and for the protocols and stuff. And when we opened in April, it was really weird because, you know, you weren't the comics because of the limited capacity. We tried to get as many audience in as we could. So the comics weren't allowed to go inside the club until they were going on stage. So being New York City, we'd have to stand outside in the cold and wait to be called like, all right, you're next. You're, you know, your spot's next. OK, so then they would let you in and then you could go up and you had to wear your mask. So you got to the stage and all that shit. But now it's like um, it's just like we just dropped. Yesterday, having to prove uh, your vaccine uh, uh, status at right. the door like that was up until yesterday. We had to show vaccine status, but some private businesses want to keep doing it. And that's fine. They said, if you want to, that's your business, but you don't have to. The only people that really have to mask now is like in public areas like the subway, which I think it should be mandatory forever. Sure. People should wear fucking masks on the subway. It's filthy and disgusting. The animals that are down there. And it's just, I wear a mask on the train because I want to, because I'm like, I'm trying not to catch anything again. I had COVID bad a year and a half ago. I'd never want it again. Um, so, uh, but the clubs, the bars, uh, even the stores now are lifting the, the mandate, like they're not requiring it, but some places still do, which is fine. But we've dropped all that and we haven't had masks on in clubs in months, like since September, I think it was. How did you know you had COVID? Like, did you wake up one day and go, oh, my God, I can't taste my food? Or did you have a headache? I felt like a bus hit me. And I couldn't walk. I had no strength. I didn't lose taste and smell, which was weird. So I didn't know it was COVID at first. Um, I just thought I was exhausted. So I was training really hard. I was doing show after show. And I wasn't sleeping. And I was just grinding, just trying to recoup my money. and then. Uh, I just, wow, I'm like, I can't, like, I can't even open the door. Like, I couldn't lift anything up, like walking, my legs would give out and I'd almost fall. Um, the doc said that I didn't lose taste and smell. He goes, you probably because you have a lot of zinc in your body. So when you have a respiratory infection like that, it attacks the zinc to, to heal. So I go, well, yeah, I, I probably do, but I never lost taste and smell, but <clears throat> I couldn't walk. The fever was bad. Um, I, uh, there was one point I was paralyzed for a couple of days and I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't move my legs. Um, the pain in the body was brutal. Um, the breathing like was so hard to breathe and I'd get winded just trying to walk to the bathroom. And I would just be like, I got to stop. Like I was just, it, it was bad, but you know, I had long COVID. I have, I'm actually finally, I'd say about a month ago, i finally feel like I'm over all the symptoms and I got it January of 2021. And that's scary because for those of you who don't know Christy, by the way, where can people follow you, Christy? Is it at Christy Miller Comedy or? Yeah, it's at Christy Miller Comedy on Instagram and TikTok. And uh, I tried to change my old Twitter handle because I've had it since I played roller derby because we were supposed to get Twitter handles back then in 08. So I got at Bitchy Slambora and I wanted to change it. But my name, my actual name is way too long. So I just left it at bitchy slambora, but I'm not a big Twitter person. It's too angry. But so. when you say you felt bad and sick, people don't who don't know you, like you are the most incredibly in shape and, and powerful woman uh I think I know outside of uh 
maybe a, a pro wrestler uh, girl I know. Uh, of course, one of Eleanor's friends who almost broke my legs one night. Uh, <laughs> put she was drunk. This this is why um, I love the comedy. Well, see, I don't. But see, I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't do drugs. I don't party. My drug of choice is the iron, but I don't. That's it. And so when you're sick, when you say you feel weak, that's how powerful COVID is. Gino, you, you, (laughs) I love Gino and I love Aaron Berg too. Oh, they're great guys. Those are, those are my dudes. Those are my dudes. They make me laugh, but I do have to clown Gino for being a tinfoil. I I know. I just love uh, Aaron because he he seems to be the go-to host for roast in New York. And uh, yeah. He's whenever, great at that. That's his, that's his strength. Whenever I'm feeling down, I put on the Kevin Brennan roast and. Oh, that's such a great roast. Oh, that roast was so good. There were so many, it was you were either really good. Or it was a complete train wreck. The day. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and every time I watch the clip, I don't know, you know, I got to be careful how I say this. He's the big guy. Uh, he, he might be, he might be special needs. Uh, Mike Braschetti. Oh, that's Mike Machete. Everybody's below. I had to roast battle him at New York Comedy Club. But, no, I mean. It's- I annihilated him. I didn't care how retarded he is. I don't care. That's I love him. He's a, he's a New York icon. Yeah, he's an icon here. But he's not a special needs, is he? Like, Yeah, he's on the spectrum. Yeah. Oh, like, is he autistic or he's. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, okay. Well, that's not, yeah. to me, that's not special needs. That That's just, he doesn't. Oh, but if you knew Mike, yeah, it's special needs. <laughs> oh, but when he starts bombing. And, oh, it's the greatest like, thing in the world. It's so oh. funny to me. Like, Oh, it's, it's why we love him. It's, look, it's why. The look of terror on his face when I think he did a joke about Kevin's wife and. Uh, yeah. No, he did a joke about the two girls on the dais about. Hey, if they get drunk enough, maybe they'll fuck me. <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> like he's totally hyperbolic. <laughs> then, uh, I think uh, Aaron called out Chad Zumach's name, who I, I've watched Chad set. I don't think he bombed because he was, uh, you know, he, he had an interesting set, but I don't think it was as bad as people made it out to be. But when Braschetti starts bombing, everyone's like, hold on, Chad. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chad said it, it was a bomb, but I think Braschetti, Braschetti is a fun bomb. Like Braschetti, Braschetti bombing is endearing. And, and it's just, you know, you, you it makes you love him more. Chad bombing at Brennan's Roast was like very uncomfortable. But machete bombing is just uh, it's just adorable. But some of Chad's jokes I thought were really funny. (laughs) (laughs) Like he did the joke about, uh, you know, uh, Gary Goldman wanted to be here, but he couldn't. He's across the street. Uh, Another male comic couldn't make it. Leslie Jones couldn't make it because he's across the street with Gary. Like it just it got. I don't know. Some of the jokes were good. I, I'm trying to stick up for Chad because, uh, you know, he's one of my buddies. But uh, oh. I think the, the Bosch musical cue in the beginning threw him off. And uh, right. I love uh, Kevin Brennan, although we haven't talked in a bit. I think he got kicked off of Twitter or something. Uh, yeah, he did. <laughs> why did he get kicked off of Twitter? I was trying to find out and read about it. And I, he just said something really fucked up and okay. somebody reported, somebody reported him and then he got banned probably because he'd been banned before. And now, now he's just been kicked off. Do you guys get along? You guys seem like you would get along. You know, I've never like hung out with Kevin Brennan. So I don't know. We, we know of each other. We just never been in the same room together for periods right. of time. And it's, so there's so many clicks, which, you know, in New York, there's so many comedy clicks. And then in those comedy clicks, there's comedy clicks. So there's like thousands of comics that I've that I'm still meeting for the first time in 20 years that I'm like, how did we never meet? How have we never worked together? But it's just different circles you work in. Like during lockdown, I found a whole new tribe of comics to roll with because of lockdown. 
and these Zoom shows that we were doing that, you know, like Broadway Comedy Club went on Zoom four nights a week. So I would close a lot of those shows. And then I got to know comics that I knew of, but that I never worked with because they're on different circuits, like Richie Byrne and Mark Riccadonna, John Poveromo, um, Rob Bartlett, like some old school dudes that are hilarious, that are now part of my tribe that I never before lockdown would have never been in the same room with because we work different circuits. Yeah, I mean, it's I don't. It's crazy how. You know, like in L.A., there's a lot of cliques and uh, yeah. others. I mean, there's comics who are afraid to come up to the comedy store <laughs> because they're not good. Let them good. They should be. <laughs> Fuck you. That's the Mecca. That is the that is the homeland. It really is. Uh, so uh, now recently you had a personal situation uh, where you lost your mom. Um, how are you doing in that regard? Like, uh, she, you could, I could just tell by the pictures of your mom. That's Christy's mom. Like, uh, oh yeah, that, I'm her daughter, big time. Um, she's uh, she was one hell. She died a week ago today, and it's hard and it's a weird roller coaster because I, I finally got to feel her Saturday night when I got home or Sunday night. I got home from the comedy club, right. took a shower, and then there was weird signs all day, like messages, like people messaging me. I like I feel compelled to message you, your mom, who don't know me, and said. Your mom will give you a sign. She will reach out like you will hear from her. You will feel her. And I'm like, who's sick? So I'm like, okay, I'm going to feel her. And then that night something happened when I got home out of the, when I got out of the shower and I went to my room to like go chill out. And she, there was a big sign and I sobbed for like an hour. And then I called my best friend, Gina Savage. She was one of the managers of the comedy cellar. And I bawled for like an hour and just, she's like, just get it out. And I just felt it was kind of a relief that I felt her. And I feel Mooney a lot. When Mooney died, I felt him a lot. And I, I felt him before and then I felt him after. So I always get signs from Paul. So I'm hoping mom does that too. Well, I only bring it up just because, uh, you know, comics are so fucked up. Like, uh, you know, when I lost my parents two months apart, uh, you know, probably a month later, I'm like, okay, what was funny about that? Like, how can I turn this into a, not a bit per se, but you know, and there were some funny things that happened like at the funeral home and, you know, yeah. guys selling me a casket for my mom. Like it was a car. Uh, yeah. Know, and like, yeah. Like, do you, but that's part of therapy. That's what comedy is. So yes. Yeah. You should. So, so like, it, it, I, I've already been thinking about it, you know, like uh, uh, Teddy Smith, he's a big comic here. Do you know, Teddy Smith? I don't, but he probably he's doesn't know me either. Right. He, uh, he's like, he's like if Richard Pryor and Bernie Mac had morphed into one comic, right? Like he's brilliant. So we're writing partners. He's like my brother. He's my brother from another mother. He's like, we write every day and talk about deep shit. And I was talking to him about my mom, about, you know, I asked my brother, I said, well, if she's, you know, cause she went so fast, we didn't expect her to go in 24 hours. We thought we had another week or two. So when she went, my brother was going to FaceTime me for when the last rights were being read, but she didn't even make it to last rights. She was out. Like it was like last call. Like, like she, it was, she was out. Right. She left. So I was on speakerphone going, what's going on, Steve? And he goes, Oh, mom died 15 minutes ago. So we did the service anyway you know, around her. And at the end we told funny stories. Christy, you there? Can you hear me? Oh, uh, yeah, you're back. You're back. You just froze for a second. I thought that was your mom giving us a signal to end this podcast. She probably was because we're talking about her. My Internet literally just went dead on my little <laughs> bars. <laughs> that, but, that's uh, your mom. That's a signal. Yeah, that's a thanks, mom. See, that's what she would do. She'd be like, fuck you. You ain't talking about me. Uh, well, I guess it's time to end the podcast. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> We've had a... Uh, 
not an intervention, but we've had a uh, premonition from Christy's mom to, uh, uh, you know, stop talking. So <laughs> this is the Ouija board edition yeah. of Inappropriate Earl. <laughs> yes, we'll be uh, transcribed we'll be, by a Ouija board. <laughs> we'll be talking to Paul Mooney tomorrow. Uh, we'll go to Roscoe's on Crenshaw and we'll get a Ouija board. Uh, but uh, I love you, Christy. Uh, I love you more and I miss you. I miss you a lot, and uh, I hope it was all right that I brought up your mom. But I, I just absolutely, uh, she uh, was amazing. She would have loved you. Oh, she would have absolutely loved you. But it's weird, like when you posted pictures of her, and I, I, I think the one it's either she's in a military or a nurse outfit. Uh, oh, it's Air Force. Uh, I'm blind as a bat, you know that. Uh, That's okay. But it was like literally, you could have shown me a thousand pictures of a thousand women, and I would have been like. This one in the Air Force outfit, that's Christy's mom. Like, yeah, we look identical. Well, we look identical. Like, I, but then when you see pictures of my father and him and I looked identical, like, so I, because I'm kind of like a chameleon, I can morph into whatever, but my mom and I are twins, like beyond twins. It's just, it's uncanny how much we look alike. Well, she raised a great daughter. You're, you're very well missed in LA. And well, uh, I miss LA very much. I miss the store. I miss you. I miss I miss being there. I miss the family. I miss all of it. And you know, I got an invitation for the 50th anniversary. And I was so funny? upset. I can't. I'll be in Florida with Dice. Okay. In West Palm. So I wrote Peter back and said, I'm on the road, but I want to see pictures. And he's like, Oh, absolutely. And so. But it's like the one time I'm working with Dice in April, it's the 50th. And otherwise I would have came home. I would have totally come home. Well, uh, maybe we can Skype you, me and Tommy. We'll, uh, we'll all get you. <laughs> oh, I mean, Christy, you got to do something about the background on your Zoom. It's all black. What, what do you think I'm thinking right now? <laughs> I don't like black. Well, that's uh, Tommy Morris, the old talent coordinator who. Uh, yeah. Let's just say I don't want to get sued. Let's just say Tommy has some interesting views on certain elements of society. Yeah, he he still he wishes it was 1864. Yeah, and, and Erica <laughs> would prove that. Well, yes. I mean, there's not a black guy near the band for a mile. So <laughs> uh, this has been Christy Miller, guys. Follow her. If you're in New York, see her. There's no one better. Uh, and Aww. you will not. Look at the lineup and go, which one is Christy? She'll be the one in these skin-tight leather pants. Uh, <laughs> I've worn those so long. Cut off. I've uh, been so lazy. I've been wearing just workout clothes because I'm just, like, so lazy now. Yeah. I'm just, like, I don't even care anymore. The face you. is beat, but I'm just, like, that's it. I'm comfortable I because I roll around a lot. Right. Well, I saw one picture of you. It was like, damn, she looks like she can go from the stage to the power rack, right? Like, Fuck like, yeah, I can. <laughs> I'm, I feel like that scene in Buggy Nights. I think it's a good way to end it because I can hear your mom like in this fucking podcast. <laughs> How much can you bench? Uh, my last max was one eighty-five. <laughs> for rep? Oh, for Matt, but what? What do you for like? PR. What do I rep out? I could do one thirty-five for twelve for five sets of twelve. Yeah. That's pretty. And what yeah. squat? Uh, my max at the point, I haven't maxed out since before the pandemic, mind you. So I don't know what it is. And I had to rebuild my strength. Before the pandemic, it was 275, but I do 225 for like sets of five. And wow. then uh, my deadlift before the pandemic was 385, beltless, wrapless, perfect form, because I'm highly trained and because it's my nerd. And, uh, uh, I rep out 315 for sets of five. Like yeah, sets. Pretty impressive, man. Yeah. Some guy came up to the gym a couple of weeks ago. He goes, oh, you're taking 315 out for a spin? I said, yeah, just a little cardio. And he's like, God damn it. Well, I, I go, oh, when I'm 51 years old, I hope you feel bad about yourself, sir. You do not look 50. <laughs> I mean, you don't even look 41. So whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Uh, and I'm not just saying that because you gave me a free membership to goals in Hollywood. <laughs> uh, I mean, I live you and in Joe West, Diaz. But I mean, I live in West Hollywood. I, I think, okay, this is kind of a gay neighborhood. And then I go to goals in Hollywood. And that is, oh. that is, uh, it might be the gayest building I've ever set foot in. I mean, it was. Well, when you come to New York, I will take you to the gay, the New York version of goals, which is Temple. Okay. It is 
it is gayer than a picnic basket. It is so like it's like a big glory hole with weights. It's just amazing. I'm good. I'll just go to Equinox, <laughs> but I'll, I'll meet you after. <laughs> we have better equipment, and I don't mean the the cocks either. Hello. <laughs> hey, uh, all right. Now your mom's definitely uh, yes. So I love you, Christine. <laughs> I love you. I'll see you soon. And yes. Uh, Say hello to Marino and all our New York comrades. I definitely and tell all the LA comrades I love them. I will and tell Eric Aligny, uh, keep it going. I'm proud of that guy. <laughs> all right, I definitely will. All right, see you, Christy. <laughs> all right, babe. Love you. Bye. Love you.